Your Bibles are open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I know some of you never realize this about me, but my dad got me into a hobby of pocket knives. Have I ever mentioned that to you? I mean, I don't remember if I ever mentioned that to you. And he got it from his dad, and I have knives from both of those guys still in my collection. I enjoy a good, a good folding knife in the pocket just to have along in case you need to cut a thread or open a box or, or whatever, gut a fish, something like that. I uh, like a good pocket knife. Well, I would talk about knives every once in a while. I know you have a hard time imagining this, but when I was teaching at the seminary in Virginia Beach, I'd talk about pocket knives. And I, every once in a while, I would tell my students, hey, I'm going to a, a, a knife show this weekend. And they were a big deal over there uh, near all the military bases. And every once in a while, I'd have a seminary student say, could I go with you? I've never been to a knife show. And I'd say, sure, jump in the car. I'll leave Saturday morning at 9, be here, and, and we'll go. And these were usually guys that didn't know much about pocket knives. And I, I would always have to tell them, give them the same pep talk. Okay, when we walk in, you're going to be overwhelmed with all the knife vendors there. It'll be a room, just a huge convention hall filled with knife vendors. I said, just follow me. We're going to walk past some very colorful displays and, and very um, impressive uh, knife vendors. But just keep walking with me um, because I know what vendors you don't want to stop at. And we're going to make our way to the best vendors who have the best materials and and offer you the best knives that you'll pass on to your kids, that kind of thing. And they would, and, and every time it was the same thing, when we walk in, they'd always want to stop at these big displays at the beginning, the ones I told them not to. And they'd always ask me, why can't I look at these knives? And I'd always say, well, as flashy as they are, they are counterfeits. They are, uh, they have taken shortcuts, they haven't used the best materials, and every counterfeit pocket knife that's trying to be something it's not, those knives will fall apart. Just give them enough time. They're counterfeits. And it's guaranteed they will eventually fail you. Now, I'll back out of my little hobby illustration again because you glass over whenever I mention pocket knives. But I want you to remember what I, what I said to that seminary student. And I want you to bring it into the topic this morning that we've been studying here as a church family during this series. I want you to bring this idea of counterfeits, something looking real but falling apart in time. I wonder what that would look like when we talk about repentance. We've been talking about repentance through this entire series. We've, we've seen the beauty of the shepherd in Matthew 18, 12 through 14, going for his straying sheep, not just sheep that that occasionally get away from the flock, but these are those that have gone off with no intention or even knowledge of how to get back. And the shepherd goes for them. And we saw that as a picture of Jesus pursuing those that he loves, those that he's redeemed, to bring them back, and he rejoices in that. And then we spent the next two parts of the series in verses 15 down to verse 20 of Matthew chapter 18. And again, you have the review sheet with you. And it's with the process that we call church discipline, but really we decided to rename it the shepherd's reach. Because when the shepherd goes for his straying sheep, he goes through his church. He goes one-on-one -on -one with a believer pursuing that believer. And if there's no repentance, or as Jesus says in Matthew 18, if he refuses to hear, then you take with you, with you two or three others so that now not only is he accountable, but now you're accountable as a confronter. And the end goal there is still their repentance. But now there's a, an accountability for both of you. And it says if he refuses to hear them, that means repent, 
and tell it to the church. And the church is deployed to appeal to a, a straying brother or sister to return, to, to repent of their sin, come back to the fellowship. And it says if they refuse even to hear the church, you are to treat them as an outsider. They're not considered uh, one of you because they have self um, dismissed them, they've dismissed themselves by not repenting. We've talked a lot about repentance. And this final message of this particular series, I want to talk about repentance. Because perhaps you've wondered, what is real repentance? How would I recognize real repentance in my life? Or how would I recognize counterfeit repentance in my life? One thing's for sure, it's true about pocket knives, and it's true about repentance. If the repentance is counterfeit, that means that there have been shortcuts taken, all the wrong elements used, and it's just a matter of time before that repentance is shown to be counterfeit. It will fall apart. It's guaranteed. You know what I mean. Perhaps, I'll give you three scenarios here, perhaps you question yourself about private sin. The things you struggle with and, 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 and sin in your own heart, your own unique sins, your own unique lusts, as James says in James chapter 1. It, perhaps it's that struggle and you're like, I thought I repented. How come I still struggle? Again and again and again. And you sure love verses like Psalm 51 verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. That verse is precious to you. But you're like, why then do I keep running back to my sin? Am I really repentant? It's a good question. Or you may wonder about counterfeit repentance in this situation, not so much questioning yourself regarding your private sin, but questioning yourself about public sin. This is when you have sinned against someone else, and, and, and you thought you repented to God, and you thought you repented uh, and asked forgiveness from the other party, but for some reason, the party you sinned against seems hesitant to accept your sincerity. You ever been there? They find it hard to believe that you have changed, especially after all this time. It could be that those that you have sinned against still struggle seasons later in your life to fully trust you. And you're like, was that counterfeit repentance or real repentance? It's a good question. Or, here's a third scenario... Maybe you question others who have sinned against you. You question whether their repentance and, 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 and remorse is sincere. You've been asked to forgive them. They've owned their sin. They have asked you for your forgiveness, in some cases, again and again and again. And you find yourself hesitant to forgive and to trust. These are all good questions that we need to answer this morning. What is true repentance in the life of a believer? And what is counterfeit repentance? I know this. Counterfeit repentance looks real. It takes shortcuts. It will fall apart in time. Time always tells the truth. Guaranteed. 
You say, well, is there a way to distinguish between counterfeit repentance and real repentance? And the answer is yes. And the passage that I always run to for this are the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. You say, well, let's go there. Well, you should have turned there already, but I'm not going to start the sermon there. I want to give you three hooks this morning. The notes that you have are only the third hook. I want you just to listen to the first two hooks. You see, I want to tell you in the first hook the, the occasion of repentance. And we're going to talk about Paul in this church at Corinth. What's the occasion for what he's going to say in chapter 7? And after we talk about the occasion, I'm going to move on to the second hook, which is the constancy of repentance. In other words, is repentance only for unsaved people to get saved, or is it something that remains a living element in a believer's life? We're going to answer that question. And then we'll get to that third hook in your notes finally, and we're going to see the marks of biblical repentance. First of all, the occasion of the repentance. What is going on? in our context here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're going to understand 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you need to understand Paul's relationship up to this point with the Corinth church. It's been quite colorful, so to speak. You see, Paul planted this church in Corinth on his second missionary journey around 50 A.D. And if you want to jot this down, you can read of the planting of the church at Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. I'll leave that for your homework. He planted that church by not just taking the gospel to the city where there was much fruit, but he stayed in that city, as far as we can tell, for about a year and a half. Not only teaching these new believers, but developing leadership and, and, and teaching them doctrine. But then the next event in the chronology of his relationship with the church at Corinth is that he wrote a letter to them. You say, well, yeah, that's 1 Corinthians. It's not. He wrote what scholars call the lost letter. And you can see, you can get a glimpse of it. Hold your finger here in 2 Corinthians 7. Let me take you to a few places. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, in his first letter that we have in our Bibles, we read of an earlier letter that we don't have. Hence, it's called the lost letter. And truly, the 1 Corinthians. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all with the immoral people of the world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. We can just stop reading there. I want you to see there in verse 9, there's a letter we don't have. That was his first letter. We don't know when that was written, but we, except that it was before it, what we have that we call 1 Corinthians. And in response to that lost letter, the Corinthian church wrote a letter back. And it was a rather disturbing letter. You can see that letter if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Just go to the right a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and look at the opening verses, opening words of verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote... So whatever the lost letter was Paul sent first, they replied with a letter that, again, we don't have that letter, but we get to listen to half of the phone conversation. They asked him very specific questions that we can now figure out, well, what were they asking him? What was in that letter? 
This is called a disturbing letter. We'll talk more about that. But this, that letter that we read about in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, prompted what is in your Bible called 1 Corinthians. He wrote this letter around 55 AD. The church is about five years old at this time. He wrote this letter from Ephesus. And he's starting to have to, even with such a young church, address some very bothersome things. He's having to confront a resurging carnality. There's immorality going on in the church with church members that refuse to leave, even though they're indulging in that sin. He's having to to deal with divisions in that church, not just a teammate spirit, there's teams in the church, but also their loyalties are based on leaders, Christian leaders. That's carnality. He has to answer questions here in in 1 Corinthians, responding to issues of worship and responding to misuse of spiritual gifts. Even confronting in this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, error when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They've only been around for five years and this is starting to show Something, or better, someone is brewing up trouble in Corinth. And this brewing resistance led to a painful visit. We have a record of this painful visit that Paul paid to the Corinth church after he wrote 1 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1. Just note these words as we trace this chronology in context. 2 Corinthians 2.1, I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow. This last word is important. Again. He's saying, I'm getting ready and I'm willing to come to you, but I want it to be in a different spirit than I had to come last time in response to what he had to write to them. So that was his painful visit. You'll also hear Paul refer to this painful visit in chapter 12, verse 14. He says, here for this third time, I am ready to come to you. The first time was to plant the church. The second time was the painful visit. And the third time will be what he's promising. And he'll mention it again in chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. So there was a painful visit. It was so painful that Paul just couldn't let things go. And so what he did is he wrote a third letter that we now don't have this one either. Back to the church at Corinth. And it, was called, it too is a lost letter. He refers to it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, as a severe letter. Chapter 2, verse 4, I wrote to you with many tears, knowing that I would make you sorrowful. He wrote this, this would be called 3 Corinthians, I guess, if we had them all laid out here, but we don't have a copy of this letter. He sent this letter, though, by his right-hand man, Titus. He sent Titus to Corinth with this letter in his hand, The letter was read to the church, and Titus waited for a response. And Paul continued to wait far away for Titus' report. Are they going to receive this? Or are they going to cut themselves, sever themselves completely away from me? Paul was very direct in this severe letter. And Paul was worried about Titus and the news he would bring. And finally, Titus found him in Macedonia. And when Titus found Paul, Paul found Titus, 
Titus said to Paul, Paul, they listened to you. All the writing, all the painful visits, your heart that was shown and the power of God's word has brought about repentance. Paul, they're facing you now. And Paul would rejoice over this good news from Titus. That brings us now to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at this. Just listen to this reunion that Paul and Titus had with this good news. Verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Why? For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, here it is, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. And I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, look at this, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Wow, what a reunion. What a reunion. Paul's encouraged. The church is now facing him. There's still some resistance that needs to be confronted in that church. But as a whole, the church seems to be turning towards Paul. So encouraged is Paul that he promises, not only in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, as we've seen, but also in chapter 13, I'm going to come visit you again. I'm going to come visit you again. If you were to interview Paul and Titus, and say, what's the difference between real repentance and counterfeit repentance? You guys know anything about that? I'm confident that both of those men would stand before you and say, huh, let us just tell you with the situation with Corinth, you can't miss real repentance. You can't miss it. The fruit and the offender as well as the fruit of the, and the life of the offended, it's absolutely breathtaking. Real repentance you won't have to, to wonder about. I dropped this quote in your notes at the bottom of the page by A.W. Tozer. He would agree with Paul and Titus. Deliverance can come to us only by the defeat of our old life. Safety and peace come only after we have been forced to our knees. God rescues us by breaking us by shattering our strength and wiping out our resistance. He's right. So, that's the first hook, the context. And we had to look at the, the relationship of Paul with the church at Corinth so that we can understand just two verses in 2 Corinthians 7. 
But before I get to chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, I want to give you four theological statements about repentance. This is Roman numeral 2, the constancy of repentance. Because look at verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Or literally, it says, a repentance without regret to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now we read that and we have a question. It's like, was Paul just telling them that they just got saved? It sounds like it. What, What is he saying there? Let me give you these four theological facts. Fact number one, repentance with faith is the door into the Christian life, listen, as well as the daily reality within that life. If God gives you the grace and the gift of faith and repentance, faith in Christ, repentance from your sin, that's not just a hand the ticket at the window of, of salvation and now I can do what I want. No, that, that now will have a growing presence in your life, a turning from sin in your daily life. Repentance is the door into the life as well as the daily reality within the life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, just listen to these words. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's true that repentance and faith is is the door into eternal life. But it's also our reality within that life. Verses like Matthew 6 verse 12 in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaches us about praying. He accentuates the need for us to pray, forgive us our trespasses, and we're already children. We are saved people being told to pray with an awareness of our failures and quick, keeping short accounts of sin with our Lord, our Redeemer. Even if we go to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 19, in a letter written to the church, Jesus says, those whom I love, my children, my redeemed, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Theological truth number one, repentance is the door into the life as well as a daily reality within life. Theological point number two, repentance is a grace from God for unbelievers as well as for believers. For both? Yes. In Acts chapter 11 verse 18, when we hear about the Gentiles coming to faith, Listen to these words, Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. But I also read in Romans 7, 14, from the pen of the Apostle Paul, someone who'd already been in the ministry no less than 25 years, saying in Romans 7, verses 14 and following, Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? I'm like, Paul, aren't you saved? He would say, yes, I am. But the saved part of me, my inner man, is incarcerated in this flesh that won't go to heaven. And they're in conflict with each other. And I find then, Paul says, this principle alive with me that the one who wants to do good doesn't do it. He does the things God says not to do. 
Even John has to write to Christians in 1 John chapter 1 that if we confess our sins, Christians still sin. That's theological truth number two. Repentance is a grace from God for unbelievers as well as believers. Listen, for unbelievers, they're dead. They need to be woken up. And the Spirit does that. He gives light. But now the believer, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, has a growing awareness and frustration with their struggle with sin and that frustration. If you have that frustration, don't think you're not saved. That's a sign of life. You're alive or you wouldn't care. That too is a gift. Theological point number three. Repentance impacts your intellect, your affections, and your choices. Repentance is not over just one act back there. It's, it's a repentance over what was I thinking? And how was I interpreting that wrongly? And why, what was fueling my choice to sin like that? And repentance is on that. It's not just to get out of an awkward moment and through a difficult chapter of your life. Repentance for whatever that offense was for Christians is a repentance that's going to bear fruit not just in that situation, but beyond that situation. Theological truth number four. Repentance always precedes change. Dr. David Lowry of Dallas Seminary is right when he says, repentance is a change of mind involving action according to God's will. Repentance always precedes change. Ephesians 4.22, written to Christians, says, In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self. That's repentance. Proverbs 28, verse 13, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17, the end of verse 16, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Listen to this. Cease to do evil and learn to do well. There's always repentance first. Let's say you're going to drive to some relatives up north in the upper peninsula of Michigan for Thanksgiving week. Some of you probably will, but let's all put ourselves in that situation. And you jump in the car Tuesday or Wednesday and you Get ready for the three or four hour trip up north for Thanksgiving and pumpkin pie. And, uh, and you're about an hour or about a half hour into your trip and you start seeing signs for Toledo. That can't be good. You're a half hour into this now. And you're finding out that Toledo's in front of me? I mean, that's bad in itself, right? And uh, uh, no, nothing against my, my friends in Toledo, right? But now what's the first thing you got to do? If you want to make it to Thanksgiving dinner, you've got to turn that car 180, and you've got to get going the other direction now. You've got to start going north. You've been going south. That is a simple and, I think, accurate picture of repentance. So you've got a handle right now on the context of repentance and the constancy. But back to our original question. How do I know if my repentance is sincere or if someone else's repentance is sincere. This brings us to your notes now. The marks of repentance. And just a reminder that counterfeit repentance looks real. Counterfeit, counterfeit repentance takes shortcuts. 
it uses cheap material, and it will fall apart in time. Time will always tell the truth when it comes to counterfeit repentance, guaranteed. John the Baptist agreed in Luke chapter, seven verses, Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He's telling the crowds who are coming out to be baptized, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. If you've repented, it's going to show. It's going to be concrete. We read in Acts chapter 26, verse 20, Paul's testimony about his defense of his ministry. And he says, uh, but we kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the regions of Judea and even to the Gentiles, this is our message, Paul says, that they should repent and turn to God, listen to this phrase, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. The fruit of repentance will always be concrete. You'll be able to point at this. You'll be able to point at this. You'll be able to point at this and say change has been wrought by God's grace. Even our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 verses 15 through 20 says twice in some of the closing words of the Sermon on the Mount, you will know them by their fruits. So what is repentance not? Listen, get this clearly. Repentance is not merely saying, I'm sorry. It's not repentance. Repentance is not saying, I'm so embarrassed. That's not repentance. Repentance is not saying, all right, I'm really trying hard this time now. It's not repentance. Repentance is not saying, I'm just dying with these consequences, man. I got to get out of this. That's not repentance. Repentance is not saying, well, back off a little bit. I'm a, I'm a product of my culture. No, that's not repentance. Someone would say, I'm, I'm, I, I just don't know what to do. That's not repentance. It's not repentance. Say, so what is repentance? Look at verse 10. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. I've just read in your hearing now the, 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 the tried and true, God-inspired check on what is true repentance and what is counterfeit. It's right there. Right there, piled up in these two verses. I believe these verses give us seven unmistakable marks of repentance. Number one, there is a vertical sorrow. There is a vertical sorrow. Uh, this, is God, this godly repentance is being compared to and contrasted against a worldly, fleshly repentance. It's not a sorrow of the world that merely preserves death. No, it's something that definitely is the result of God. It's according to the will of God in verse 10. God is at work in producing this. And the word he uses is this word you see over and over in these verses, sorrow. Sorrow. Ah, this is the launching point of biblical repentance. It's a Greek word that means literal, not just... Um, uh, oh, I regret. It's not a word that says, I'm, I'm kind of tired, like at the end of a Hallmark movie. You know, it's, No, this is talking about pain. As a matter of fact, the ESV will describe it as grief. 
This is someone who is not merely crying about the consequences. They're not merely losing sleep at night because they got caught. This is someone whose primary source, listen, of grief and pain is that they did this. It's a sorrow. Charles Spurgeon said, repentance is as much a mark of a Christian as faith is. A very little sin, as the world calls it, is a very great sin to a true Christian. The Puritans used to say it this way. George Swinock put it this way. He grieves truly that grieves without a witness. Your tears are flowing about your own sin when no one's around to be an audience. That's the first unmistakable mark of repentance. It's a vertical sorrow. It's that you sinned in spite of what he's done for you. In spite of the resources he's promised to you. I did this. There's a sorrow over your failure of your Lord, towards your Lord. There's a sorrow over your flesh that lunged out again. There's a sorrow over your best efforts that have been made to change without God's resources and going God's way. That's what you're sorry about. It's before God. You've noticed a, a, a gap between your position in Christ and your practice in Christ. And you grieve. That's the first unmistakable point of repentance. There's six more. Number two, there is a commitment to change. See, how do I know if I'm repentant? Because there's a commitment to change. Look at verse 11 again. It says, for behold, what, and here's your word here, earnestness. Earnestness. This is a Greek word that means what diligence. There's an eagerness here. There's there's no sitting still here. You're, you're hastening. You're rushing towards something. And I believe you can take this word earnestness in this part of the verse and combine it with the word zeal that you see further in verse 11. And they're communicating the same reality with two different words that you are on the move. If you're truly repentant over your sin, there's no restraint. There's no hesitancy for you to right this wrong. You're not being described as indifferent. You're not having to be pushed and pulled. You're outrunning those that are trying to help you. You're running towards Christ for mercy and grace. There's a commitment to change. One author put it this way, repentance is not only saying I'm sorry, it is also saying I'm through. Yeah. You've hit God's wall and it hurts. There's a third mark of repentance. Number three, there is a desire to display real Christianity. There's a desire to display real Christianity. Look at verse 11 again. It says, this godly sorrow, this earnestness, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And it says here, what vindication of yourself. You see that phrase? What vindication. What does this mean? This is a word that it's apologia. You hear the word apologetics there, and you're right to do that. Um, uh, the ESV translates it, I believe, eagerness to clear yourself. This word apologia, vindication, means to, to give a defense against an accusation. It's the same word that's used by a different author, Peter, 
in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to, and here's the same Greek word, to make a defense to everyone who asked you to give an account for the hope that's in you. You say, what's this third mark of repentance? It's this. There's a desire on your part now, because God's working in your heart, to display real Christianity to such a degree that it will eclipse the lie you were living before. It's starting, listen, a legacy afresh. You might have been living in a way that didn't at all say, I'm a Christian in Christ. It didn't give that impression. Say, can a true Christian get to that, that low point? Yeah. That's why the shepherd comes for you. But when there's repentance in the heart, there's a desire to display real Christianity now. Number four, the fourth mark of repentance. There is a righteous anger against sin. I like this one. There's a righteous anger against sin. It says in verse 11, after what indication of yourselves, it says, what indignation. You guessed it. This particular Greek word means that sometimes it's good to be ticked off. Not at the consequences. Not at someone who sinned in response to your initial sin to them. No, this anger is against your own sin and your own flesh. There's an anger there that's focused on you. And you are convinced, you're energized by this anger. Remember what anger is. We've seen this in our anger series. Anger is a gift from God to solve a problem. When we sin, we're the problem. And this is energy from God to solve that, to right that. If someone's repenting over their sin, you better get out of their way. They're running towards God. They're angry at their own heart for betraying again. And they want to get back on the right team. Not just with themselves and with the pain they've caused in other people, but the rejoicing they've caused for the very enemies of God. It's interesting. Our Lord in the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into testing, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, when we give in to sin, could it be that we cause rejoicing with the kingdom of darkness? Absolutely. Paul writes in Romans 6.21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Way back in the 16th century, there was a, a catechism written called the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you are memorizing it or have memorized it then you know the answer to this question in that catechism from the 16th century. What is the dying away of the old self? In other words, what does repentance look like? I love the answer that the catechism gives. Answer. It is to be genuinely sorry for sin, listen, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it, end quote. Yeah, that's the right answer. Even John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote, The difference between true and false repentance lies in this. The man who truly repents cries out against his heart. But counterfeit repentance cries out against someone else. Or even the serpent. Just like Adam and Eve. The fifth mark of repentance. Here it is. There's a fresh sense of the presence of God. There's a fresh sense of the presence of God. Now look, look back at verse 11 with me. It says, what indignation. Look at the next phrase. What fear. 
Uh, okay, what do we do with that? Fear? Um, fear of what? Fear is a response. What do you mean, what fear? So we need to do a little Bible study, and we're almost out of time, so buckle your seatbelt. One way that we understand what a word means is to figure out, well, does the author use this word in the same letter any other times? How many times does he use it? And how close, how, how, how many times does he use that same word close to this occasion in chapter 7? Well, I'll do your work for you. Paul uses this particular Greek word five times in this letter for fear. It's a Greek word. And four of those times are in this chapter. So this is going to be kind of easy to figure this one out. What do you mean, what fear? What fear? Well, I want to show you the other three times in this chapter. It's in chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the, here it is, fear of God. I see it a second time in verse 5. Paul, remember, describing his suffering as he waited on Titus's news. He says, even when he came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. Now hold on to that one, and I want to show you the third occasion outside of verse 11 in this chapter. It's in verse 15. His, Titus, his affections abound all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him, Paul's messenger, with fear and trembling. So immediately I'm seeing here, right in the vicinity of verse 11, that word fear there, I'm seeing three occasions of fear, and two of them are going to be helpful to me. In verse 5, where it's just Paul talking about um, uh, fears within, it's, those are going to be uh, worries, anxieties, if you will. But the one in verse 1 and verse 15 are going to tie this up for us. This fear, listen, the fear of the Lord is an awareness of his presence, his proximity, not just as the mighty creator, and not just as the re our redeemer, but as our father. We have the full picture as New Testament saints. It's having a fresh awareness of that, his presence. Or, as he says in verse 15, the presence of one of his messengers. So you know what this is going to say. Test number five is there's a fresh sense of the presence of God. It means this. A mark of repentance is fear in the presence of God or his messenger. There's, there's an awareness of the repentant woman, the repentant man, that God was here all along, and I was missing him. I was too involved in what I was into, and now I'm turning the volume down on everything in my life except enjoying his presence and his faithfulness to me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is right when he wrote these words, Satan does not fill us with hatred of God when we sin. He fills us with forgetfulness of God when we sin. Or Kent Hughes puts it this way in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, God disappears to lust-glazed eyes. But when it's... When someone's repentant, suddenly they can see again. He was there the whole time. He was there protecting me when I didn't deserve it. 
He was there showing his faithfulness to me as a father when I wasn't even aware of it. And now he's all I want to behold. There's a fresh awareness of the presence of God. That's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That's the gift that keeps giving. Proverbs 16.6, the fear of the Lord keeps you away from evil. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Number six, what's the sixth sign of repentance? There is an unreserved love for those who confront. This one's tricky. You want to know someone who's truly repentant? There is an unreserved love for the one who confronted them. Our natural reaction when someone confronts us about sin is to compare ourselves with them. Yeah, well, what about, right? There's a natural reaction to criticize a person who's confronting us or criticize the imperfect process that's being used. There's a natural reaction to us to want to charge someone with being a legalist. There's a natural reaction to distance ourselves from someone who would confront us, love us enough to come to us. But it says in verse 11, it says, what Longing. Do you see that in verse 11? What longing? Again, what does that mean? Well, again, he uses that word in verse 7. Titus reported to us your longing. Or we see, um, uh, we see in verse, uh, uh, let's see, I'm just going to leave it at that point because of our time. But you see how Paul uses that word longing in the same chapter. What does that mean? It means leaning towards. A truly repentant person is leaning towards, they're yearning, leaning into the very person who confronted them. That's what's going on. That's a big one. The litmus test for this one is, well, how does the repentant saint talk about their confronter and act towards their confronter? That'll tell you if it's true or not. I'm repentant, but they... You just killed it when you said, but they. Because this repentance primarily is going on between you and Jesus, no matter how imperfect the person is in your life. There's one more test. Time is gone. There is a promotion of justice, number seven. If you're truly repentant, there's a promotion of justice. Look at verse 11 one more time. It says, what avenging of wrong. What avenging of wrong. Now this, I, I, can't, I can't sand down the sharp edges on this one. It, it, it's talking about retribution. It's talking about punishment. I like the Nasby's translation here, the avenging of wrong. Who's wrong? Yours. You see, someone who's truly repentant doesn't fuss at consequences of their sin. They don't complain about how hard it is. They don't complain with how long is this going to last. They're out in front of the people that they sinned against, confronting themselves. Understanding consequences are part of the package being restored. As Ted Tripp says in his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, and Jim Berg mentions in his books too, uh, Change to His Image. Sin is supposed to hurt. 
It's part of the rescue. It's a promotion of justice. You're not protecting your self-interest anymore. There's a welcome, grace-filled vulnerability before a just God, a kind God, and his paternal consequences. John MacArthur puts it this way, repentance needs to be as loud as the sin was. He's right. He's right. There's no bulking. There's no poor me. There's a fresh understanding of Proverbs 18, 19, which says a brother offended is harder to be won than a walled city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. What a verse. A repentant person expects the castle to, see, to have bars. And they're going to wait it out. And they're going to they're demonstrate a real repentance. So look at your notes as we finish. What are the marks of repentance? What tells the difference between real repentance and counterfeit repentance? There's going to be a vertical sorrow. There's going to be a commitment to change. There's going to be a desire to display real Christianity. There's going to be righteous anger against sin. There's going to be a fresh sense of the presence of God. There's going to be unreserved love for those who confront. And there's going to be a promotion of justice. There's no delay. There's no excuses. There's no faking. There's no shortcuts. There's no conditions. But I need you to understand this about the verse before we close. Verse 11 is not merely a formula. It's not merely something to put boxes in front of and check, and check off when you do them once. No, this is the work of God in the heart of a believer. This verse is Paul's observation, his commendation. This is not something in verse 11 that's to be worked up. Rather, it's to be worked out. These are unmistakable marks. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, this is so important that Paul, we haven't finished the verse, as you know. I'm going to just read the rest of it now. Paul says, when these are present, verse 11, in everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Or as the ESV says, at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Because this is what's coming out of your heart. Because there's been true repentance. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. I like that. So you had three questions at the beginning, remember? Why do I keep sinning? I thought I repented of this sin. Now you have a verse to come to. You understand the verse and the context. So examine your repentance on that private sin based on these criteria and pray. Pray in these categories, calling out for God's mercy and grace and help. What's that second question? The second question is, well, what about you sinning against someone else and now they're hesitant to trust you again? Well, what do we do in that situation? You got your verse. You got the context. Work through this, first of all, privately in your life as to the optics of repentance you've been throwing and then sit down with the person you sinned against, teach them this, and say, now you grade me how I've been doing on every one of them. The Puritans used to say, we must repent over our tears of repentance. We can't even repent right. We need help. 
You say, well, what if others have sinned against me and I'm slow to trust and forgive? And the only response there is to that for you and for me, and we can all struggle with this, is the word grace. Another word is the word mercy. Our Lord taught in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. James quoted his brother's Sermon on the Mount a lot. And in James 5, or excuse me, 2, verse 13, James writes, Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Little caveat, if you're in a place of danger, that trust needs to be built back over time with other eyes looking in, the eyes of the church, and where needed, the eyes of the state. And here at Calvary, we'll help you with both of those. David prayed in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the clarity of your word. We've been asking the question, what's real repentance? That lasts. It takes no shortcuts. It uses the best materials, and it endures through time and demonstrates change and fruit. You've answered our request with the clarity of your word. Whether we're talking about matters of church discipline or whether we're talking about interpersonal relationships, whether we're talking about crises in homes, this, this is not just an answer, this is the answer, Lord. Thank you for the grace of repentance. And if you're here this morning, I say to you with your eyes closed and your heads bowed still, and you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never entered into this life, this eternal life that Jesus Christ provides for you, and having died for sin and, and having risen from the dead, and he's been exalted to the Father's right hand, and he now offers you forgiveness of your sin if you'll believe in him and repent of your sin. If you're still there, I got great news for you. You can receive his free gift of eternal life today. I pray in Lord, I come to you now and, and I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I, I won't defend one inch of that. I'm a sinner. I know I'm lost and I deserve your wrath for eternity, but you've given a way of salvation. Jesus Christ, you died for my sin and rose from the dead and you're offering me your free gift of eternal life. I, I accept that by faith, Lord. I throw all my weight on that and not on anything I can do that's in the name of religion. It's all of you and grace. And I repent of my sin. Lord, rescue me. If that's in your heart and you're praying that, I got good news for you. That prayer is heard. And when it's sincere, you are born again. And I want to talk to you in the lobby when we are dismissed in just a few moments. Come find me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindnesses to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.